it's good. It's good to be here this morning. It's good to see you. Um, if, you're, if you're new here, my name is David. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm also a member of the preaching team. And we've been in a study in the book of Exodus. We've been covering the journey of God drawing his chosen nation, Israel, out of slavery and towards the promised land. And we're going to be continuing this journey through Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy over uh, the rest of 2021. Now, for those of you that have been Christians for a while that are, are familiar with the Bible, you'll know that the vast majority of those books contain what we would refer to as the law. That God gave Israel a certain way of living, certain standards of living, certain ceremonies. And that's a part of the Bible that that if we're honest with each other often as Christians, we just kind of skip over that section because it's boring, or we don't understand it, or it makes us uncomfortable. And so today we're going to be stepping into a section of law in Exodus 20 through 23. And so there, there are a few points I just want to cover as we, as we step into this. First, I want you to think of a mirror. I, w- I want you to imagine that I have one of those, those portable mirrors, and, and, and I'm looking at that mirror. I'm, I'm wearing the same set of clothes, the same haircut, but I'm looking at that mirror, at myself in that mirror in my living room. And then I pick up that mirror and I carry it into my bedroom and I look at myself in, uh, in that mirror in my bedroom. And then I pick up that mirror and I take it outside and once again, I'm looking at my reflection in the mirror outside. Now, now in all three of those cases, what has changed? The setting has changed, right? I'm still wearing the same clothes. I'm still the same person with the same haircut. But outside, there's different lighting, and there are trees in the background. In my bedroom, there's different furniture than in my living room. And when we look at the law, the law is a reflection of God's character, providing a better way to live in an already broken world. The law is a reflection of God's character, providing a better way to live in an already broken world. That when we study the law, though our relationship to the law is different than it was for Israel because we're in a new setting, the principles remain the same because the law is a reflection of God's character, and God's character is unchanging. The the specifics of the law certainly have changed. Our relationship to the law has certainly changed because the law was given to a specific people in a specific time for a specific purpose. But the reflection of God's character we see in the law does not change. And so as Christians, we can still study the law and see God's character. Uh, Often people will think of the law in three parts. They'll say that there's a moral law, there's a civil law, and a ceremonial law. So they'd say that there's some of these, uh, these laws and rules we find are moral, telling people what they should and should not do you know, with their bodies and what they should and should not do uh, towards others. Some of them are civil, and it, it teaches the government of Israel how to punish evildoers, how to maintain order. And then there are ceremonial laws that refer to worship and how people were to offer sacrifices. The issue is these three categories are not cut and dry. And so as we study the law, we're going to see times where there's a law that is both moral and civil, or both moral and ceremonial. So this is a helpful category system for, our, for us to use, but uh, we can't hold to it too tightly. The, the law takes this form of, of if and when sin happens. Is the law is responding to sinful situations. It is not prescribing sinful situations. So if and when someone murders, this is a wise way to handle it. If and when there is conflict in a family, this is how that situation should be handled. And unfortunately, we will never fully in this life understand which, you know, every little bit in nook and cranny of the law because there is a long cultural bridge between the culture and the people that God gave his law to and us today. There are verses in there that scholars still just are kind of boggled by. You know, like, why were they not allowed to boil, you know, a goat in its mother's milk? There are probably a hundred different theories on why that's a law. There are certain verses that we just don't fully understand because we live in a culture that's very separated from them. 
But the vast majority of laws we can see God's character in. We should dig for the principles and bask in God's character as seen in his law. We should, we should dig hard for those principles and bask in the God's character as seen in his law. In, in Deuteronomy 4, verses 5 through 7, It says, see, I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who when they hear all these statutes will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him. That that one of the major reasons that God gave his people, Israel, the law, was to make them wise, to give them a, a, a wise way of living based on God's wisdom rather than man's wisdom. And so when other nations would look at Israel, they'd go, whoa, God's doing something there. Those people live differently, and it was meant to draw other nations to God. Unfortunately, it didn't really play out that well. But let's pray for wisdom as we open God's law today. Lord, thank you for your word. Your word is truth. Please give us discernment. Holy Spirit, please direct us as we enter into a difficult text, one that preachers often avoid. May these words be yours and not my own. Please build up your people, convict us, grow us. In the powerful name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So I'd like you to turn to Exodus. If you aren't already there, we're going to be in Exodus 20 through 23. And we are not just going to go verse by verse by verse by verse. We would be here forever if we did that. We got bogged down in that. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to offer up general categories. And these categories are not perfect. Maybe I'm overgeneralizing at times, but I'm going to go over some of the categories of laws we see in these three chapters and give a few examples. And my goal this morning is that together we would learn how to better interpret these laws. So, so that as Christians, when we go into our Bibles, we don't just go, oh, I have no clue what this is talking about, but we can start to try to see the reflection of God's character in his law. So in Exodus 20, verses 22 through 26, 22, 29 through 31, 23, 10 through 19, we find some principles of basic worship, some laws regarding basic worship. Early in, uh, in this section that we're covering in chapter 20, God reiterates that idolatry is a horrible issue that God's people are not to chase after other gods. They are not to put other deities and spiritual powers in God's place or to even recognize them. And then later in chapter 23, we actually see that there are some festivals that God gave his people so that they would remember him and remember what he had done. And that's something we talked about a few weeks ago. But specifically, I'd ask that you'd read with me in chapter 20, verses 25 through 26. Exodus 20, verses 25 through 26. God says, If you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stones, for if you wield your tool on it, you profane it. And you shall not go up by steps to my altar, that your nakedness be not exposed on it. What is that talking about? <laughs> right? These, these are those verses that you read in your devotional time and you're like, um, okay. So, so God is saying, when you build an altar for me to offer sacrifices on it, you are not to use stones that you have cut with tools. You're just to use natural stones. And, and the reasoning is that you shall not go up by steps to my altar, that your nakedness be not exposed on it. And to understand this, we have to go back into the the background 
of when this was written. We have to go back to archaeology and history. And if you look at a lot of the sites that have been dug up, if you look at a lot of the, the records we have of the other people groups at this time, in their religious practices, they made these huge altars with long steps. And these were, these were elegant, well-crafted altars. And part of their religious practices involved a lot of uh, inappropriate um, sexual practices and, and a lot of just parading around uh, in indecency in on these huge altars. And so God says, look, when you worship me, you don't do it that way. You don't build a big fancy altar and parade on it. No, you approach me in the way that I have prescribed and you approach me in humility. And so the, these altars that, that they would build would not be capable of being used for these other religious practices. They were meant to worship the living God. It, they were to avoid the wealth and glamour and the misuse in pagan worship. And so if we're to look at, at the principles taught in, in these verses of basic worship, we see that, that God's people were to avoid worshiping other things. They were to worship God in modesty. They were to worship God in humility. And they were to worship God in regularity. That they would have festivals to, to be a rhythm through their lives as they worshiped God. And so, and so, so what does this teach us about God? Well, it teaches us that God is the only being worthy of worship. The, the, you know, you look at all of the other religions at the time, and they were fine with a multitude of gods, but the living God is different. He says, I am the living God. I am the only God. You should not put anything before me or in my place. That God is the only being worthy of worship, and he sets the standard of worship. I, I think that's wonderful, that, that God does not tolerate DIY religion that we don't approach him just doing whatever we want to, to worship him, but he calls us to worship him a certain way because he is the standard. He sets the standard of worship. Now, now we need to do this carefully, but with each of these principles, we should see, well, what, what would this look like in our context? Well, what does this look like for us today? Because we know that, that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He still deserves to be worshiped a certain way. Most of us don't have stone and gold idols that we want to worship, but to identify our own idols, Hughes asks this. He says, we should ask ourselves this question. What am I hoping for? What am I counting on? What gives my life meaning? Where do I get my personal sense of worth? What am I thinking about? What am I working for? What makes me feel good? And where do I turn when I need comfort? And man, that cuts right to the heart because very often, if, if we're honest, the answer to many of those questions isn't God. And, and this helps us to identify when we're setting up idols in our lives that we're, we're going to something first instead of God for comfort or meaning or purpose. God should be first. He is the only being. He's the only object of worship. He's the only one who deserves to be worshipped. And I think also looking at these laws, we do not use flash and, and glamour and immodesty to sell Jesus. And, and that should seem pretty obvious, but well, we do not throw, roll out the, the, the smoke machines and the background dancers to try to get people to come to know the Lord. <laughs> we don't. That God calls us to come to him in, in modesty, in humility, and to, or, that our worship will be centered around his word. And that's a beautiful thing. It's not flashy, but that's the way God has called us to worship him. So, so moving on in Exodus 21, 1 through 11, six, verse 16, verse 20 through 21, verse 26 through 27, verse 32 God puts extreme limits on slavery. God puts extreme limits on slavery. Now, this is a very touchy subject. Often when people even see that, that there was slavery in the Old Testament, they just write it off. But we need to recognize there was a huge difference between American slavery and the slavery when the Old Testament was written. And there was a big difference between the slavery when the Old Testament was written and then the limits that God put on it. 
the slavery at this time was mostly voluntary. Under the law, God actually made slavery a redemptive institution. God did not establish that institution, but he put severe limits on it. So that in Israel, among God's people, you could only be a slave for six years, and then you were released. So if you got into debt, if, if you fell on hard times, you could sell yourself as a servant to another one of your countrymen in your community, and they would provide for your needs. They would provide you, you know, job site training. You work for them for six years or, or less, depending on the situation, and then you were freed again. And by the law, they were to actually send you away with wealth. And the whole structure was that it was actually illegal to sell an Israelite to a foreigner because the foreigners did not practice this six-year release. So, so God put severe limits on slavery so that it would actually be a redemptive institution. They would provide people a way to escape the cycle of debt and poverty rather than be enslaved to it. In verse 16 of chapter 21, it says this. It says, whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. By this verse, the entire American slave trade was utterly unlawful, and every slave owner in America should have been executed. Because God has created man in his own image and has given him value and worth. And so God says in his law, anyone who steals a man is put to death. Anyone who is found in possession of a stolen man is put to death. This means that if you were exchanging servants and slaves, you had to be very certain that that person wasn't stolen, but they had actually entered into that service voluntary. God put extreme limits on slavery. Another interesting one, you can see this in chapter 21, is that uh, if someone was to marry a slave, or if their son was to marry a slave, that woman must be treated with the full, um, the full rights and privileges and respect of a family member. That, that if, you're, if, you're, if, you, if your son married one of your slaves or, or you married a slave, you cannot treat them as property anymore. You cannot treat them as a second-class spouse or a second-class child. They had to be treated as a wife or daughter. This is a level of protection for women that is just unparalleled in, in ancient documents from this time. Because God values all people. God doesn't recognize this, this same value system that we put on people. We say, well, this person is kind of half a person and this person's greater. You look in the law, and, and God does not have this differentiation between the rich and the poor that you see in the other law codes uh, of that day. I, th I think the principle here is that even the lowest members of society should be treated with dignity and they should have an opportunity to escape the cycle of debt and poverty. God did not view his people Israel as, as, a, as a section of classes that you had the rich people and the poor people. As, These are my people. And they should have the freedom to worship me and to prosper. And, and we look at who God is. God cares about the dignity and welfare of all types of people. He does not show favoritism. And, and if we're to recontextualize this, if we're to try to think of this in our own context, obviously we don't practice slavery here. But we do have employees and, and bosses, small business owners and employees. And employees, especially the most desperate and vulnerable, should not be abused or taken advantage of. That it, is, it is a wicked thing as a boss to, to recognize that your employees don't really have a lot of options. You know, the job market is tough, and, and they don't, there aren't really a lot of other places offering jobs. And so you use that knowledge to maybe force them to work hours that are unhealthy. You use that knowledge to offer them wages that are non-competitive. This would be a wicked thing for us to do. Or if someone's an immigrant and they don't speak the language well, to use that as a way to charge them less than they deserve. All people deserve dignity and respect no matter of their socioeconomic class. 
And, and here at, at, at Hollis Center Church, we're trying to grow in our approach to benevolence. Often churches have, have taken a, a, a strategy towards the poor that we just throw money at them and then walk away. That, oh, your oil tank is out, we're just going to fill it up and walk away. And, and what, what, what there's a team here at Hall Center trying to do is develop a team centered around community development. That we aren't just trying to throw money at these problems, but we are investing in those people and in those relationships. We're part, trying to partner with organizations so we can actually help these people escape that cycle of debt and poverty. And that's what God, God's standard is. He doesn't want people to stay in that space. We should do our best to help people to escape that. In Exodus 21, 12 through 14, 18 through 36. Chapter 22, 1 through 17. Tw- uh, chapter 23, f- uh, verses 4 through 5. We have some laws center- centering around motive, liability, and restitution. Motive, liability, and restitution. In here, we see that there's a difference between manslaughter and murder. That if you accidentally kill a man, you could flee to a certain space, and it was illegal for, people, for that, that person's family member to go there and kill you. But you could go to this city of refuge, and in that city of refuge, you could then await a trial. But if you had actually schemed to kill someone, if you had premeditated this, if you had laid in wait to, to murder this person, and you went to that city of refuge, they could drag you right out and put you to death. In the law, God recognizes that there's a difference between manslaughter and murder. There's a difference of motive in crimes. In issues of liability, if you had an ox that attacked someone, and this is just out of the blue, this had never happened before, of course you make restitution. You try to, you, know, you, you give to that person for their, their medical expenses or, or whatever, But if you had an ox that had repeatedly tried to attack people and you had been negligent and you you were not putting up a good fence and you didn't really do your job to protect other people, you were actually guilty for that person's death. That that, that we as people have a responsibility to look out for the welfare of others. That, That negligence is a dishonest way to treat the people around us. And if you stole from, from someone or if, if there was some sort of, sort of accident, in, in the different cases, you would pay that person back a certain amount of money plus some. And it varied case by case. In chapter 21, please look with me at verses 22 through 23. It says, When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman, So that her children come out, but there is no harm. The one who hit her shall surely be fined, as the woman's husband shall impose on him. But he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. This is such an important law because in it, God recognizes that that unborn children are full persons with full human rights. That that if two guys were were tussling, if they're having a brawl and they hit a pregnant woman and and the baby comes out and and is is fine, is unharmed, then they were to make restitution for the, the damages in that attack. But if they were to hit that woman and the child were to die, that is murder. And there was to be uh, the death penalty as, as a result of that. That God views unborn children as full persons that have full human rights. And, and if we look at, look at the principles here, we notice that intention affects punishment. There's a difference, right, in the mind and heart of a person between murder and manslaughter negligence and, and an accident, that, that people have a responsibility to prevent accidents, damages should be paid back, and we would recognize that those are all things that are more or less recognized in our current laws, that we have actually very robust liability laws, we have car insurance, we have all of this, but, but the one thing here, right, the one thing here that's not well represented in our laws is, is the rights of the unborn. 
that, that we do not live in a country that recognizes the unborn as having full human rights. And, and that's a horrible, wicked thing. Here we see that God's character, God holds men responsible, but also judges the heart. That, that God recognizes that, that, that there's a difference between an accident and, and an intentional damage, an intentional attack. That God doesn't just look at our actions, he looks at our hearts. That, that's why, if we're to go a little bit deeper with this, that's why in worship what matters is our hearts. That's what God cares about. We can do religion really well and still not be worshiping God because God knows what's going on in here. God knows what's going on in here. In Exodus 22, verses 16 through 17, 21 through 27, 29 through 30, and and in uh, chapter 23, 1 through 3, 6 through 12, we see some laws around this idea of social justice and protection of the vulnerable. Social justice and protection of the vulnerable. And, and, and as being in a, in a part of the U.S. where, uh, just to be honest, this is a more conservative area, we sometimes hear that word social justice and we get kind of a poor taste in our mouth because we think of a social justice movement. We think of social justice warriors. But, but when we speak of social justice in this context, we're talking about justice in society. <laughs> and that is something that God is very for. That's something that God cares about, that there will be justice in society. Say, say what you will about modern movements, but God cares about there being justice in society because he is a God of justice. Uh, turn with me to chapter 22, verses 21 through 24. It says, you shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them, they will cry out to me. I will surely hear their cry, and my wrath will burn, and I will kill you with the sword, and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. This is an extreme verse. But, but the point here is that God says, look, do not oppress people who are foreigners, people who are from away, because you were once in that same position in Egypt. Like, like, do not just turn against people and do the same sin to others that was done to you years ago. And he speaks very harshly against taking advantage of the, the widow, taking advantage of the orphan. That, that, that these are people that God cares about that God listens to, and he says, look, if you're taking advantage of those who are in a worse condition than you, I'm going to listen to their prayers. I'm going to hear their, their cries and know that there is a just God that's coming for you. God is fiercely protective of the widow and the orphan. Fiercely protective of them. In, in chapter 23, please read with me verses 10 through 11. It says, For six years you shall sow your land and gather in its yield, but the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow, that the poor of your people may eat, and what they leave the beasts of the field may eat. You shall do likewise with your vineyard and with your olive orchard. Here, here we have some verses uh, we, we have some regulations about your fields. And this is weird for us because most of us are not farmers. And even those of us that are, you know, farmers, we don't, whoa, we don't have massive fields. We aren't growing huge fields of wheat and barley and whatnot. But this was a very much a, a, an agrarian society. And they were, to every field, they were to grow in it six years. And the seventh year, they would give it a rest. And this is both a ceremonial law and a moral law, and somewhat a civil law. Because it was, it was representative of the idea that God rested on the seventh day, that, that, that as human beings we, sh- we should be driven by rest, we should be driven by Sabbath, that we should trust God. And so they were, to, they were to plant in it for six years, and that seventh year they would eat the stuff that they had grown the previous years, and they would rest. 
but also on this seventh year, those, those crops would still come up. You see, you'll see it around here. If someone grows corn one year and they don't the next year, there, there's still some crop that comes up the next. And so this would be a source of food for those who were in poverty, that they could go to these fields and they could harvest freely on that seventh year, and it would be also a source of food for animals. That God even cares about provision for creation. In chapter 23, verse 1, it says, You shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. That God's people were not to spread false information. And specifically, they were not to then lie in a court of law to take advantage of people. You know, that, hey, if we all get our stories straight, you know, we can make some money in this case. Or, you know, we can make this person look out to be the bad guy. No, God, God hates that. That we're to be driven by truth. God's people are to be driven by truth. We see principles in here regarding the social justice, protection of the vulnerable. That justice needs to remain justice for all. That God's people were to protect even those who are poor, even those who are uh, from away, and especially the vulnerable. And so we see that God is a God of justice, that God is a God of right and wrong, and punishments of, of evildoers, and he fights for the oppressed. Right? And that should, should cause us to pause, that, that when we look at our lives, are we taking advantage of other people? Or are we being negligent in our care for those that are less fortunate? Because that's something that God intensely cares about. If, if we look in our own context, historically the Christian church has had a heavy emphasis on taking care of widows and, and adoption. The, the back in, in the, the Roman Empire, the Christians would go around and they would gather the babies that were left out to die and they would raise them as their own. Even in the book of Acts, we see that one of the earliest ministries of the church was taking care of widows. And today we recognize that, that often the role of the widow, uh, at least added to the role of the widow, is that in our society we have a lot of single moms that are struggling. And, and, and these are women that, 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 that God wants us to reach out to, to take care of. You know, adoption is, is a special ministry that Christians have, have often majored in, is that the society says, well, we don't want these kids. And the Christians stand up and they say, yes, we do. They're made in God's image. They are valuable. We will protect them. We will raise them. We will love them. And praise the Lord that there are so many people in this church that have stepped up into that ministry. Praise the Lord of that example. In, in Exodus chapter 21, verse 15, Verse 17, chapter 22, verse 28, we see some laws around respect. In, in verse 15, it says, Whoever strikes his father or mother shall be put to death. In verse 17, whoever curses his father or mother shall be put to death. And in verse 28 of chapter 22, you shall not revile God nor curse a ruler of your people. And when it's referring to cursing your mother and father, this is not like, okay, your kid is mouthy one day, and so, oops, send him to the chopping block. Right? This isn't what this is referring to. This cursing your, your mother and father is specifically referring to those that were refusing to take care of their parents. And this is something that Jesus actually talks about in, the, in, uh, in his earthly ministry. But in the Jewish culture, Children were responsible to take care of their parents in their old age. And so when someone would, would, would rebel against that and they say, no, I, I hate my parents. I, no, there's no responsibility there. Uh, that was a serious act of rebellion. If someone spoke evil against their rulers, against the authority, that was a serious act of rebellion. And the reason being that both parents and government are authority established by God. Now, now, sure, it's messy. We need to use wisdom, right? There's a difference between a government we don't like, that we need to be silent on, and we need to, we need to you know, stop mouthing out about it, and a government that is actually being oppressive, that we need to speak out against that evil. 
There's a difference between parents that, that maybe annoy us and we don't want to take care of them and maybe parents that have been abusive towards us we need to separate from, right? There's always a role for wisdom in all of this. But isn't it so easy to speak poorly in, in some, of, some of our cases, speak poorly about our parents or to speak poorly about our government, right? We don't like that they did this or, or this. These are two institutions that God has established that we are to respect, and yet, yet often we, we do the opposite. God is the one who establishes authority. Being completely sovereign, he's established all authority on this planet. We are to respect that. If we're to look at this in, in our own culture, I've already talked a little bit about that, but we, we should oppose elder abuse. We should, we should oppose those who, who take advantage of their elderly parents and reject their, their elderly parents. We should speak out against that evil. For, for those of you that, that are still living under your parents' roofs, especially, respect your parents. It's difficult sometimes, but, but we should not be speaking evil of them. We should recognize that authority. And especially, we shouldn't be speaking poorly of our politicians. And man, I don't like that one. Because there's some pretty funny jokes out there. You go down in the Rotting Gun Club and you stand in line for 10 minutes, and you will hear probably 20 different Hillary Clinton jokes. Well, but if someone has been established in authority over us, we shouldn't be speaking evil of them, because that's an authority that God has established. And that's tough. That, that, that's, that's, that's personally uh, a very challenging. I found that challenging this week. But, you know, as Christians, we should not be the ones driving around with the blank mills bumper stickers. If there is real corruption and evil in the government, yes, God's word addresses that. We should stand for what's right. But when it comes to just, oh, we don't like this person or like this person, man, we should, we should avoid from slander and, and gossip in those situations. In Exodus chapter 22, verses 18 through 20, we just have a couple verses here about deviancy. It says, You shall not permit a sorceress to live. Whoever lies with an animal shall be put to death. And whoever sacrifices to any god other than the Lord alone shall be devoted to destruction. So here we have, we have two instances of religious deviancy, sacrificing to a god other uh, then God are actually uh, engaging in witchcraft and trying to manipulate the spiritual world for your own personal good. And, and then an act of, of sexual deviancy. And the principle here is that spiritual and sexual deviancy against God's design is a big deal. And it's a big deal because when we look at God, we see that God is a good designer. That God has created the whole world. And certainly the world we live in has been affected by the fall. But ultimately, as creator, he has a design that is best. And as humans, we do not have the right to say, Ah, God, I think I found a better way. I think I found a more enjoyable way to use my body. I think I found a, more, uh, a better form of spirituality that, that just works better for my life. We do not have the right to do that because God is a good designer. He is fully good and we are not. That when we drop the script and we step away from the design, we enter into dangerous territory. And that territory is dangerous enough that God was willing to prescribe the death penalty for the people in his nation, that the nation wouldn't be led astray by these practices. And so if we're to look at this in our own, our own picture, it doesn't change that much. that we should warn each other against the dangers of occultism and sexual deviancy. These are two things that are on the rise in our, in our culture, in our nation. Witchcraft is one of the largest uh, growing religions among young people. If you were to look at some of the top, the top TikTok trends of the past two, three years, occultic activity and sexual deviancy are actually themes that are being presented there as, as normal, as acceptable, as, as a new thing to experience. The, the danger of the, of the internet, right? And we believe that the internet is an awesome tool. An awesome tool for the gospel. An awesome tool for entertainment. There's a lot of good that comes from the internet. 
But before the internet, I mean, all of us, all of us have unnatural desires because we're all fallen creatures. But before the internet, man, if you had, if you had a really unnatural desire, often that would be suppressed because you felt alone. You thought, man, that's weird, and no one around me does that, so I'm just going to suppress that and push that away. But, but now we live in a world where you can go on to Reddit, and you can find a subreddit or a sub-sub-subreddit, and you can find a hundred or a thousand people that share the same desires as you, no matter how abnormal they are. I mean, this is, a, this is a real risk because it's one thing to have an abnormal, unnatural desire. It's another thing to then be in a situation where there are hundreds or thousands of people supporting you in that and telling you, man, yeah, go for it. That's fine. Here's some tips and here's some tricks. We need to be, we need to be fearful of those dangers that just because there are people supporting something on the internet does not mean it is good. We need to be driven by the designer's design. The law is a reflection of God's character, providing a better way to live in an already broken world. But the law is of little value without Jesus. The law is of little value without Jesus. Certainly, right, we would say that if our nation, and our nation, honestly, our nation's laws are often very much formed by God's law. There's a lot of Judeo-Christian influence in the law codes of our nation. We would say that if a nation is to, is to read the law and study and try to apply some of these principles, certainly it will go better for them. But that's about where the benefit ends. That's, that's about where the, the benefit ends. The law is of little value without Jesus. In, in Deuteronomy 4, verses 5 through 7, as we read earlier, that the, one of the points of the law was that God's people would live a different way, being driven by God's wisdom rather than man's wisdom, and the other nations would see that, and they would be drawn to it. The issue being is, when we look in history, when we look in Scripture, did that play out? No. That generation after generation after generation after generation of God's people in Israel walked away from the law, rejected the law, and we're doing the same abominable practices of the, as the other nations. Because the law has no power in itself. The law just tells you what is right. It does not empower you to do what is right. The law can convict us of sin, but it cannot lead us into holiness because every single one of us is a sinner. We are depraved. Turn with me to, to Matthew 5. In Matthew 5, verses 13 through 16, it says, this is Jesus speaking, You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything, ex for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they might see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Right? We see this same principle from Deuteronomy 4 reiterated by Jesus. That the way we live has the ability to draw other people to God. But the danger in Christian circles is to try to do that without Jesus. And we say, man, now I have all these rules, and I'm just going to follow these rules, and our rules are better than the Buddhist rules, or our rules are better than the atheist rules, and so people are going to see that we're the better religion, and that's how Christianity is going to grow. But the issue is we still do not have the capability to, 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 to live this out. When we try to do good, we do what is evil. John 15, verse 5. Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. 
See, all of us live as rebels that when we look at God's law, we say, man, that's really great, but we have failed time and time and time and time and time again. And before a just God, we face, we face the spiritual death penalty. We face consequences in this life, but there's a worse consequence in the life to come. But what God did is he came down in flesh and he took that wrath upon himself. He took the penalty for his people. So that when we trust in him, he forgives us. He fills us with his Holy Spirit. And as we dwell in Christ, he enables us bit by bit by bit by bit to live a better life. And certainly we're not perfect until that glorious day when we are with him in heaven. And then eventually the resurrection where we get a new body and there's a new heaven and a new earth. But if we just try to take Christian morality and we just try to do it with our own effort, it is worthless. It is why we look at a nation that is Christianized and the majority of young people look at the church and they say, oh, there's a bunch of hypocrites. Morality is not good enough. We need Jesus. The whole point of the Bible is that we are not strong enough to succeed in morality. We need an external work from an all-powerful God to save us. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Jesus fulfilled the law. He fulfilled it. He fulfilled its requirements where we couldn't. So the beauty is we now get to turn back to the law as Christians. We get to flip the pages back and no longer are we being condemned by the law, but we get to live under the law's benefits without the curse. We get to live under the law's benefits without paying the lawbreaker's price. And we get to turn back to the law and rejoice in God's character as seen in it. And we get to shape our lives around those principles. And we get to benefit from that. But when it comes to our salvation, we are not trying to obey those principles to be right before God because we know that's not possible. We get to be driven by the goodness in God's law, but we are free from the condemnation of it in Jesus. So, so my charge to you today is to live better, but not without Jesus. Do not listen to this message and think, oh, there's some moral principles I can add in my life. Be drawn to abide in Jesus and then flip back. Then look at the law. Then be led by it, be led by the truths in scripture. If you don't know Jesus, believe. Morality will be useless. I mean, sure, there, there's, there's certainly a benefit by treating someone well than, than evil, but that's about where the benefit ends because we are wicked in our hearts. We're broken in our being. We need an external work. And the beauty of today is today that we as Christians get to be led in celebration of Jesus and his work in communion. So I'd like you guys to prepare your, your, your elements, to grab your, your cups and peel off that, that first lid This right here, this is a symbol for believers. So for those of us that belong to Christ, we get to partake in this. And, and, and when Jesus was enjoying the Last Supper with his disciples, he broke the, blood, the bread. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. <sighs> On that cross, Jesus took the full wrath of God from our law breaking. I, I want you to think through those verses we've read and time and time again, right, we see that there is a principle that has a law and if you break that law you have to pay up. Either you pay it back to society or you pay the death penalty. And, and all of us are rebels. Apart from Christ, we're rebels. And yet every one of those executions and restitutions and those punishments that, that we, should, uh, we should pay but we're unable to pay, Christ took on himself in his body. So let's do this in remembrance of him. Oh Lord, your scars should have been ours. We should have been the ones hanging with thieves 
thank you for your forgiveness that we don't deserve. Amen. And, and as we grab the cup, Jesus took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. The beauty is, as we as Christians get to live in a new covenant, that we are not under that old covenant where God said, here are my standards. Live by them and it will go well with you. Disobey them and there will be a curse. We live under a new covenant, the, the one that, that the prophet Jeremiah spoke of, where God said, I will, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and no longer shall each go to his neighbor and say, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least to the greatest. In Israel, you had a nation full of people who were trying to live God's way, but only a small portion of them knew him. Only a small portion of them were actually hoping in his future work for their salvation. They were trusting him. But, but us, as, as the gathered body of Christ, there, there's an invisible church where each and every one of us who belongs to him, in that new covenant, we know him. We've been forgiven by him that we don't need to go to our neighbors and say, know the Lord, for we all do. Now, we live in a, a physical world, right, where we do need to go to our neighbors and say, the know the Lord, amen? But today we get to celebrate as those who are part of the new covenant that God has brought us together by his blood. Let's do this together. Lord, thank you for your law. Your law condemns us. It shows us that we are broken. And so I praise you that you fulfilled the law for us in its commands, in its requirements. And that by your blood, we get to step forward as sons and daughters and we get to live as part of your covenant people and now we get to experience the blessing of your law without the condemnation. Help us this week to be driven by your principles that our lives would more and more reflect your character. And that we would be salt and light in our communities, drawing others to you. Powerful name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen.